As we prepare to read the nativity story from Luke's gospel, chapter 2, verses 1 through 20, let us now turn to the Lord in prayer, asking him to bless this reading of his holy word that we might hear it afresh this evening. Let's pray. Almighty God, just as you came and revealed yourself long ago through your word made flesh, come and reveal yourself this day through your written word. Grace us with your presence. Grant that we may get a glimpse of your glory. Speak to us of your love and mercy that descends from heaven to draw near to us in our despair and darkness. And we pray, O Christ, just as you were born long ago in Bethlehem, be born this day in our hearts through the power of your Spirit. For we pray this in the name of the one who was born in Bethlehem, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Amen. The inerrant, inspired, infallible, holy word of God, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. Hear the word of God, it is written. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. Now to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ, be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We come once again to this familiar passage, Luke's nativity story. 
every time I read this passage, I am struck by how Luke tells of the birth of Jesus in such a matter-of-fact way in the opening verses of chapter 2. There is very little detail concerning Jesus' birth. Luke simply tells us that while Mary and Joseph were in Bethlehem, where they had gone to be registered, according to the decree of Caesar Augustus, the time came for Mary to give birth, and she did. And she did what mothers did then and what mothers still do today. She wrapped her firstborn son in swaddling cloths. And because there was no place for them to stay in this overcrowded little town, the baby Jesus was placed in an animal's food trough. That's it. Verses 6 and 7 are the only ones devoted to telling the actual birth of Jesus. And certainly there is much going on behind the simple telling of Jesus' birth. We have the miracle of the virgin birth. We have the reality of how God has sovereignly orchestrated bringing Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem, which had been foretold hundreds of years earlier by the prophet Micah to be the location of the birth of the Messiah. And it should give us pause to marvel at how God ordained to work through the pagan emperor Caesar Augustus and his selfish desires as well as the free will of others to fulfill this prophecy and to bring about his redemptive purposes. So there's a lot going on in the background, but on the surface we have very few details in these opening verses. What we have is a baby being born in an obscure little town to obscure parents. They didn't, there didn't seem to be anything unique about this birth, nor did there seem to be anything noteworthy about this child that would cause anyone to take notice that something very special had occurred. The, the birth seemed to be nothing more than just another baby born into the world to a poor young mother. He was just another baby swaddled, swaddled tightly to be comforted and kept warm. The creator of the entire universe had taken on human flesh in a baby boy and slipped silently into this world in the midst of a busy, bustling little town of Bethlehem. And no one would have ever known that Jesus had been born. No one in Bethlehem knew, nor did anyone in Jerusalem. Certainly none of the Romans knew, except that the silence concerning the birth was about to be broken. The heavens, it seems, could not contain themselves. This comes in verse 8, where we see a dramatic shift occur in the narrative as Luke moves us away from the manger scene and takes us to some shepherds who were unsuspectingly keeping watch over their flocks outside of this little town. It was there between Jerusalem and Bethlehem that the sheep were kept that would be sacrificed in the temple on the Day of Atonement. And these shepherds 
that evening received a very unexpected interruption from a messenger of the Lord. Luke tells us, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they, the shepherds, were filled with great fear. Now, it's seemingly quite enough that an angel has appeared to the shepherds. That isn't something that happens every day. But we need to understand the significance of what Luke has told us here, that the glory of the Lord shone around them. This is a phrase that we might zoom right past. We might simply lump it in with the appearance of the angel as though it is all one and the same thing. When scripture speaks of God's glory in this way, though, it's speaking of the visible manifestation of God's presence displayed as an incomprehensible light. The light is often described to be brilliant and blinding. Years later, a man named Saul would see the light of God's glory shining around him on the road to Damascus, and he would describe it as a light from heaven, brighter than the noonday sun. Have you ever stared at the noonday sun or the sun at any point in the day on a day when the sky is clear? Imagine a light brighter than that, more brilliant than that, shining before you. Saul was blinded by this light. In addition to this experience Saul had on the road to Damascus, we might also think of Moses' encounter with God at Sinai or Isaiah's vision of the, the Lord in the temple. There are several of these moments in Scripture where one encounters the light of God's glory and they're all significant. It is no little thing for God to reveal himself in this way. And there's a common theme with all of these experiences. We discover that God's presence is powerful and overwhelming, so powerful and overwhelming, in fact, that it's described as a consuming fire that has the potential to incinerate those who find themselves before him. And it becomes immediately evident to those who find themselves in God's glorious presence that sinful man cannot stand in the presence of a holy God. And this makes it a terrifying experience to receive a revelation of God's glory. The typical response is for the person to fall down before the Lord, petrified and praying not to be utterly destroyed. And this is why when Moses asked if he could see God's glory, God responded that no one could see his face and live. So God hid Moses in the cleft of the rock and shielded him, only allowing Moses to see his passing glory. And we remember that when Moses came off the mountain, he was reflecting God's glory so much that he himself was shining, and even God's reflected glory struck terror in the hearts of all the people. They were afraid to go near Moses. Moses had to wear a veil over his face. And we see how Isaiah, when he found himself before the Lord, immediately recognized that he was in grave danger. 
He began confessing his sin and the sin of those around whom he lived. He believed in that moment that he might not walk away from God's presence alive. Of course, terror wasn't always the human response to being in God's presence. Before sin entered the world, Adam and Eve could be in God's presence and not fear. We see this in the Garden of Eden. Everything changed after sin entered the world, though, because sin alienated humans from God's glory. So immediately after they sinned, we find Adam and Eve hiding from God. They became fearful to be in the presence of the God whom they had once walked with in the garden. And this is why we find the shepherds terrified that night outside of Bethlehem. It wasn't just the angel. Sinners cannot stand in the presence of a holy God. Fear is the proper response to finding yourself in God's holy presence. But in the midst of the fearful response God's presence evokes, we mustn't miss why God reveals his glory in the first place. It is to reveal himself and to demonstrate his presence with his people. We see this all throughout redemptive history. We see, for instance, God leading his people out of Egypt by way of a glory cloud. And we see God's glory on Mount Sinai as he gives his people his commandments. And we see in Exodus 40, God's glory filled the tabernacle. And God's glory would later reside in Solomon's temple. The reality that God's glory resided in these structures represented God's abiding presence and favor with his people, even though they were hard-hearted and disobedient at times. But after God's people continued in their rebellious and stubborn disobedience, the day came when the prophet Ezekiel received a devastating vision. It was a vision of the glory of the Lord leaving the temple. God had withdrawn his presence and left his people to be conquered by foreign nations and to be led into exile. And at this point in Luke chapter 2, hundreds of years had passed. God's people had been taken into exile, had returned from exile, and rebuilt the temple, but there was no indication that God's glory ever returned and filled the temple as it had the first. It had been hundreds of years since God had revealed his glory at all, and God had made promises to his people, promises to redeem them by way of a coming Messiah, but it had been hundreds of years since God's prophets had given voice to these promises. It seemed as though God had abandoned his people until the shepherds were interrupted on that silent night by a messenger of the Lord and the reappearing of God's glory. Don't miss 
the significance of this moment that is happening here with these shepherds. God's presence had returned. This wasn't some small event. The appearing of God's glory was never a small event, but this one in particular was the most monumental moment in all of human history. God had come down out of heaven in a shining light once again, and this time God's glory would not rest on a mountaintop, nor would it reside in a building. It was not in a tabernacle. It was not in a temple. God's glory was coming in a person. As the Apostle John tells us, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And this is the message that the angel came to announce. Listen to the words the angel spoke to the shepherds. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. This command to fear not is used throughout Scripture. And if we were to look at all these instances where this command is used, we would notice that it's used when God has come with a gracious purpose. If God hasn't come with a gracious purpose, then we should be very afraid to be in God's holy presence. But the command here is fear not. Why? For behold, I bring you good news of great joy. This is not news of judgment. That news will one day come when Jesus comes again to judge the living in the day. And on that day, Jesus will not come quietly. Everyone will know he has come and will see his glory and every knee will bow in heaven and on earth before him. But this first appearing was not to judge, but to bring grace. This is good news. This is the good news. This is at the heart of the gospel message. It's the greatest news, in fact. It's the best news that the world has ever known or will ever know. God has come to dwell among his people to save them. And for this reason, it is news that should produce great joy. Joy is the opposite of fear. It's the highest joy. Why? Because it's the joy of salvation. It is a joy to those whose sin has been forgiven, for whom a Savior has come and died that they might have life in life eternal. This is the news the angel comes to share. This is the news of God's gracious purpose. And here it is in verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This is the most important sentence in the entire passage. It's one of the most important sentences in all of Holy Scripture. Everything in the passage revolves around this one line, who has been born? A Savior. A Savior. Now, there might be some who want to believe that the God of the Old Testament is an angry and vengeful God. And that what we have here is a very different view of God or or a different God altogether. Simply not true, though. The God of the New Testament is not a different God than the God of the Old Testament, nor is he a softened, more compassionate, more loving version of the Old Testament God. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
And what we see throughout the Old Testament is that the people of Israel have always known God to be a savior. Look through the Old Testament. See how many times it refers to God's saving nature. We find it in passages like 2 Samuel 22 where David sings his song of deliverance. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. This sort of language is all over the, New, the Old Testament. They knew him to be a savior because this is who God had revealed himself to be. He had delivered them out of the land of Egypt. He had rescued them from their enemies. He had provided for them and cared for them, saving them from affliction and disease. It is who God is. And this might not strike us as remarkable. It's become very familiar to us. So much so that its outrageousness isn't as obvious. But Israel's God was in stark contrast to all the other gods of the surrounding nations. These gods were not saviors. They did not promise salvation. They were on the spectrum from uncaring and indifferent like Baal to malicious and viciously hostile like Molech. One either had to wake the God from his sleep and get his attention to receive some sort of favor or the searing anger of the God had to be appeased through some sort of obedience or sacrifice. And if we think about it, this is still the same reality today. Every other religious system is based not on a savior God, but on how man can do something by his own works, by his own efforts to find favor or appease the God or gods and save himself. This is the means by which people earn salvation. They don't simply find any other God who is by nature a savior. The people of Israel knew their God to be a savior God and we see this all around the birth of Jesus. We see this in Zechariah, who is recorded declaring in Luke chapter 1, verses 68 and 69, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us. We see this in Mary, who sung her magnificent, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. We see this in Simeon, who also revealed that he knew God to be a saving God when he stated, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. And the people of God were awaiting more than just a physical and temporal salvation. They weren't simply looking for deliverance from slavery. They weren't just hoping for rescue from their enemies. They didn't just need saving that they could be their own sovereign nation. They understood that they had a much deeper need, a spiritual need. 
There were many who understood that their deepest need was for the forgiveness of sins. And we see this in the Gospels, don't we? We see this in the prayer uttered by the tax collector who stood far off and looking to heaven cried, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That prayer reveals a longing that was there in Israel for true deliverance, for real rescue, for full and final forgiveness offered. There was a recognition of the need for reconciliation to God in a, in a way that the sacrifice of animals could never supply. The, the blood of millions of lambs had flowed from the altar in the temple, but the blood of all those animals and even millions more could never atone for the sins of God's people. They would never truly suffice. They were always merely pointing to that one final, full, and perfect sacrifice that was to come. And many were always looking for, waiting for, hoping for that salvation that would come by that one ultimate sacrifice. They desired for God to save them in more than just a physical and temporal way. They were looking for and anticipating God to save them in a spiritual and eternal way. And this is what's being announced to the shepherds. The long-awaited Savior had finally arrived. It was glorious news. And as we are reminded of the birth of a Savior this day, some 2,000 years later, we know that much has changed. Empires have risen and fallen. Societies have progressed. Our knowledge of the universe and our world has grown. Technology has advanced. And yet, nothing has changed in terms of our true neediness. The reality is that our greatest need isn't knowledge. Our greatest need isn't healing from physical illness. Our greatest need isn't deliverance from a foreign enemy. Our greatest need isn't financial stability and success. Our greatest need isn't a capable political leader or a healthy political system or secure borders. People are always looking to be delivered in these ways. But this isn't the salvation that we truly need. Our greatest need remains the need to be saved from our sins and to be reconciled to God. We have no greater problem. And there is no more looming threat than the just punishment of our sins. It is death in eternal hell. This is a consequence of alienation to God. We cannot stand in his presence as sinners. We have to be washed clean and made righteous if we are to dwell with him and have life. And it isn't going to come by way of working harder. It isn't going to happen by doing more. You can't earn it. You have to receive it as a free gift of God's grace. And this is what God offers in his coming in Jesus Christ, the free gift of his grace to address our greatest need. But here's what I want us to consider tonight as we celebrate the birth of Jesus. The announcement of the coming of a Savior is only part of the good news. Here's the other part. He has come. He was born, God took on flesh in Jesus Christ, and he did this, and here it is, for you and for me. 
the angel didn't just come announcing who had been born. The angel came announcing for whom a Savior had been born. For unto you is born this day a Savior. For unto you. Dearly beloved, those are sweet, sweet words. And it's a shocking thing that they were said to shepherds. They weren't of the religious elite. They weren't the well-off in society. They weren't the ones who seemed favored. Quite the opposite. They were at the bottom of the social ladder. They were socially and religiously outcast. The work of a shepherd took very little skill. It's why it was given to children. It required them to be away from home and away from the temple and its worship. And on top of all that, they had the reputation of being thieves. But this is exactly who Jesus came to save. Mary sings that God has scattered the proud in their thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. It goes back to the prophecy of the coming Messiah in Isaiah 61. This is a passage that Jesus proclaimed had been fulfilled at the beginning of his public ministry. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. The opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus had come to the poor, the lowly, the humble, the afflicted. Jesus had come to the outcast to seek and save the lost. His humble birth pointed to this truth and the angel's appearance to the shepherds had affirmed it. And the shepherds in this way represent all those whom Jesus came to redeem, the humble and lowly, even us. Those who were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. The prophecy was that the Savior would come to be a light even for the Gentiles like us. So this is God's word to you today. For unto you is born a Savior. It's glorious news. We don't have to dwell in darkness any longer. We don't have to remain in sin and guilt before God. He has sent his own son, the Savior of the world. He has come down to us that we might be lifted up to him. And my prayer this evening is that we would respond just as the shepherds did to God's grace offered in Jesus Christ. They were like children on Christmas Day, having been told it's time to open the presents running with wild abandon to receive what had been given. They heard the message and believed that a Savior had come for them, and they eagerly went to make him theirs. They excitedly sought the one whose birth was announced by the heavenly host. They went with great haste to see him for themselves, for they longed to be in his presence. They went to worship him and give him all the glory. They went that they might tell others of what the Lord had done for them. 
This, brothers and sisters, is how you respond to the gospel in a saving manner. This is how you respond in faith to the coming of a savior. Dearly beloved, hear and believe for unto you is born this day a savior. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice with heart and soul and voice that Jesus Christ is born today. He hath opened heaven's door and we are blessed evermore. No more do we need to fear the grave for Jesus Christ was born to save. Help us to place our faith in him this night that we might taste of his goodness that we might receive his salvation, that we might enjoy him forever. For we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. In response to the gospel, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Nicene Creed. This is the Christmas Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? We believe.